Hi, everyone, and welcome back to this week's episode of In the Shadows, our immigration policy podcast, where we shed light on a system failing in the shadows. This episode will address the barriers to help-seeking that domestic violence survivors face because of societal assumptions about domestic violence and how those barriers are compounded in immigrant populations. What's cool about this episode is that um, we're talking about something that I really care about, which is the language that we use to talk about domestic violence and how that affects how society views domestic violence. And um, I wrote a paper last semester about it. I'm by no means an expert, but um, I thought it was really interesting to see that there are studies out there that show that people think about domestic violence as mainly male perpetrators and female victims. Um, But that's, the research shows that that's definitely not the case, that men and women experience intimate partner violence at almost the same rate. Um, But still there's a lot of these programs that are geared towards helping women. Domestic violence is still something they call gender-based violence. And that leaves out not only men, but like non-binary people, trans people who are experiencing um, intimate partner violence as well. And so I'm excited to have Dave on to kind of talk about this a little bit later. Um, Yeah, I, I definitely think that it's an issue that I think even before I got into this podcast and even just generally thinking about domestic violence, in your head, you're just raised to assume that it's going to be a woman who's the victim and then a male who's the perpetrator. And I think that it's just so normal that people, it's a problem, but I think it's so normalized now that people don't even realize it's a problem. And I think that it's tough to get people to start changing what they've grown up believing from the start, right? And I just think that it's something that we need to start having conversations about. And clearly there's been research um to say differently, but it's still so, I guess, unspoken about that people don't recognize it as being true. Yeah, I think that that's true. And I think it's a real shame because we know that there's, I mean, think about men who are in like a same-sex relationship. If those really, like we know that In those relationships, there can be domestic violence at any level um, that Danny talked about last episode. But still, the access to services for those people is very limited. And then also, 
a lot of times police response in whatever jurisdiction is hindered as well by those beliefs. And so it's something that if you take a step back and look at it, you can see that it trickles down into every area of domestic violence advocacy and makes it more difficult to actually help the survivors and the victims. So obviously every victim needs help and needs advocacy and if it's lacking then people aren't going to take it then there's a less chance that people take it seriously um, whenever it does come up but also if you think about it and you look at just the tv shows that we see that everyone's in love with you know law and order criminal minds um i don't know they're criminal minds that i haven't watched that oh my god i love that show i just started it again but if you look at them Frequently, even in those shows, they always have and rarely have, well, so they always have women victims, right? But they then rarely have male victims who are, you know, victims of domestic violence. And so even through your normal TV shows that you're watching day in and day out, you're inundated with this idea that it's always going to be the woman victim and then the male perpetrator. And I think that's also very harmful. Yeah, it's really interesting that you mentioned that like the TV shows, because I was just thinking about this the other day as I was watching a Mm -hmm. Law & Order special victims unit. Love that show. Dun, dun. (laughs) But um, that that show's been on TV for so long that if you watch like some of the earlier seasons, you can see how cultural attitudes have shifted because it's in the writing. And so in recent seasons of the show, you see a lot more inclusivity of who they're having as um like who's the victim Mm -hmm. in whatever episode um and I think that that's really important but yeah it's crazy because even even like the national coalition against domestic violence for domestic violence awareness month in 2022 they released like all of these like infographics basically and a lot of the images depicted like male perpetrators and female survivors and even if the stats weren't necessarily about men and women in relationships um, they still had like men and women in the picture and it's just something like once once you hear somebody say it, then it's something that you start noticing is happening a lot more. And so the conversation that we will have with Dave will hopefully um, shed some light on how those like societal views really play into help seeking because I think it's easy to say like these are the signs and here's where you can go if you need help but I think it's harder for some people than others yeah definitely and I mean you see how hard it is for victims who are in the traditional sense of what we think of the women we see how hard it is for them to report so just imagine on top of that where it's less spoken of um, people don't think it really exists so for men how hard it is for them to come forward when they're supposed to be masculine and fit all these weird traditional views that we're supposed to have about men 
Um, I think it was interesting how Danny said, and she reminded us that domestic violence isn't just physical, it's also psychological. Um, and I think that is also something that's misunderstood because you hear domestic violence and you instantly think, oh, she gets beaten, um, hit, you know, has bruises, has scarring to show this. But then when you have psychological domestic violence, it's something where you don't have physical scars. It's all internal and it's just something that I don't think has enough um, advocacy for. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's also really important to recognize that the way that we talk about domestic violence informs our relationships and whether we think that relationship is healthy or not. So there could be some people, because we talk about domestic violence as like, well, it's a man who hits a woman and that's domestic violence. Um, that some people are experiencing symptoms of maybe like coercive control or like financial abuse, somebody like alienating them from their friends, uh, using emotional abuse to kind of like put them down. They're experiencing those things and they don't even realize that that qualifies right. as domestic violence or that there's resources available for them. And that's, and that's, I mean, that happens with women, but that happens even more so with people who aren't in the gender binary or with male survivors because they just feel like, oh, well, I can't be a victim of this. And the way that the police come and, you know, they're the people you have to report to and police rarely have a reputation for being sensitive. Mm -hmm. So, Right. I mean it's hard to think of yourself as a victim. You don't want to think of yourself as a victim. Um, it's a very vulnerable thing to have to sit with, accept yourself, and then be ready to project out to the world, not just for your own well-being, but also to get the word out to others to say that you're not alone. It's just not easy to say that I'm a victim. I've survived this, um, and I'm ready to speak out to help others. Yeah, for real. So, I don't know. Let's um, talk to Dave now and see what he has to say um, about this topic, which I find incredibly important and will definitely, I think, color some of my work as an attorney moving forward. Okay, and now um, we're going to speak to our next guest, Dr. David DiMatteo. So to begin, we want to have you speak about your background, um, just your experiences, your education, and what really got you to this point. Sure. So yeah, once again, thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be part of this process. So I'm trained as a psychologist, and I also have a law degree. So my PhD is in clinical psychology with an emphasis in forensic psychology, and I have a, a standard law degree. And I'm currently a professor of psychology at Drexel University and a professor of law at Drexel University, and I'm also director of the JD PhD program in law and psychology at Drexel. And so my training and my interests have always been at this intersection of psychology and law. I've always been fascinated with why people do what they do, and even more importantly, what can the legal system do in terms of policies, laws, practices, procedures, to work more effectively with people who people who run afoul of the law and also people who are survivors of people who 
run afoul with the law. So my training as a psychologist is in the clinical area. So that means I'm trained with assessment and intervention and consultation. And most of my training and experience since graduate school has been working with people who are justice involved in both clinical capacities and also in research capacities. And the, the big goal is to get the legal system to pay more attention to social science evidence to improve the way the legal system functions. And I next want to ask just what drew you to this field in particular? Yeah, I mean, so I, I mean, like most things, it probably roots back to my childhood in some way. But I remember seeing a TV special when I was about 12 years old and was fascinated that someone who appeared seemingly, you know, quote, normal was engaging in horrific behavior. And I just couldn't sort of, there was this dichotomy that I just couldn't, couldn't reconcile of how people can do bad things. And it raised all these questions for me about, does that mean they're bad people? And what's the distinction between bad acts and bad people? And that evolved over the years to wanting to use the expertise of a psychologist, the assessment and the intervention skills, the research skills and consultation to work with law enforcement, to work with attorneys, to work with courts on big levels, small levels, to try to get these, these entities to pay more attention to the science. Now, you touched on um, the intersection between social science and the law. Could you expand on that relationship a little bit more and how social science influences the law? Well, social science, at least the type of social science that I'm trained in, which is psychology, is primarily focused on human thinking and human behavior. And so perhaps obviously, but if we understand how people think and we understand how people behave, that has clear relevance to the legal system, which is primarily concerned with how people think and how people behave. So fortunately, there's a variety of ways in which social science can influence the law. And I, I tend to think of this in terms of macro levels and micro levels, and they're both important. It's just sort of an arbitrary distinction. So I think in terms of conducting research that can be used to amend legislation, to develop legislation, to establish policy, um, laws relating to domestic violence, interpersonal violence, lots of other areas in the law are, at least in some jurisdictions, are partially informed by research that's been done by social scientists. Court procedures, that's another way that social science can be used to make the court procedures more effective. So, for example, when we have children testify in court, which can be a traumatic experience, developing ways that still protect Fifth and Sixth Amendment rights for the participants in the cases, but that are also protective of the psychological and emotional needs of, of children. Um, using research to inform available dispositions for people who are justice involved. So Catherine is aware of this statistic because we've talked about it in class, but the three largest providers of mental health treatment in the United States are not hospitals, not treatment centers, they're jails. It's the Cook County mm -hmm. Jail in Chicago and Rikers Island County Jail and the Los Angeles County Jail. So there's this tremendous overlap between people with behavioral health disorders, things like substance use and mental illness. There's an overlap between those disorders 
and involvement in the criminal justice system. So on the macro level, we can use research to influence policy, practice, police procedures relating to lineups and eyewitnesses. Um, we can research things like problem solving courts and diversion programs. And on a micro level, we can use social science in the context of a specific court case. So as a forensic psychologist, I will get hired by an attorney or appointed by a court to evaluate someone who's justice involved. And so if there's a mental health question that has legal relevance, for example, is the person competent to stand trial? Was the person insane at the time of the offense? Should the person get the death penalty or life in prison? State and federal sentencing, lots of different legal questions for which psychological expertise might be useful. And so on a micro level, I think of it as, if I can do an evaluation, apply best practices, then I can educate the, the judge, I can educate the jury, and the goal is to help them make a better informed decision based on the social science evidence. And I'll just add one more quick thing, which is I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that sometimes social science is not well received or not wanted by attorneys and courts and legislatures. And uh, I've experienced that as a researcher and forensic psychologist. Um, many of my colleagues have experienced that where Sometimes there's just a reluctance to want to be informed by the science or to want to hear what social science can contribute to whatever particular issue is being debated. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I guess, have you had a lot of cases that you've been involved in um, as a psychologist that deal with domestic violence? Unfortunately, yes. Um, you know, domestic violence is one of those uh, ubiquitous things. It's it's probably more frequent than many people think it is. And so um, I've certainly been involved in cases as a forensic psychologist where either the primary charge for the person was related to domestic violence and either that was an assault or aggravated assault charge or attempted murder or all the way up, uh, up to murder. And there's been many, many other cases I've been involved in where the index offense was something separate, but there's still a history of domestic and interpersonal violence. So yeah, unfortunately I've encountered it quite a bit throughout my career. So how do, um, like, what do you see in those cases? How does social science specifically help um, like lawyers and people in court understand domestic violence in those cases? I think to me, that's really the key question when it comes to this. And I think that there's, if I could address it just on a couple of different levels. And so I think that from a, again, on a macro level, the research that's been conducted by social scientists has been useful in several different ways. So you could look at a very basic way or something that maybe we take for granted now, given our knowledge about this topic, but social science was really uh, instrumental in dispelling some of the myths associated with domestic violence. So, and I'm sure these myths still exist, but the idea that, oh, only women are victims of, of domestic violence, or, well, there's just a little sort of normal part of uh, back and forth in a relationship. And as long as it's not too much, sort of these 
horribly outdated, misogynistic, and other beliefs that are just so damaging when it comes to survivors of domestic violence. Um, more recent research has highlighted not only can males be victims of domestic violence, in some studies, the rates are almost equal in terms of domestic violence. And we see even more recent research looking at the risk of domestic violence faced by people of color, um, transgender individuals, non-binary individuals, and other historically marginalized or underrepresented groups. So there's an educational component, an illuminating component, I think, to the research. Social science is also, and this is seems to be foundational, is also educated people on what constitutes domestic violence. So I've worked with survivors of domestic violence who didn't realize that they were survivors of domestic violence, who had been in horribly abusive situations, but thought, well, it's my fault, or it wasn't that bad. I know people who've gotten it worse. Or, well, it was just emotional, just name calling, and didn't understand that that can be a form of violence as well. Um, it's also been useful in domestic violence in terms of changing police procedures. So years ago, it used to be that if the police were called out to a domestic dispute, they would question the, 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 the person who experienced the domestic violence right in front of the alleged perpetrator, which we realize is not an effective way to investigate that type of, uh, of a report. Or perpetrators used to be given a free pass or a warning because it was thought that it wasn't that serious. So I could go on. I mean, there's lots of research on how to protect survivors of domestic violence, and that's made a major contribution to our understanding. And I'll end on this one because I think this is important in terms of the research, but not only are we doing research on survivors of domestic violence, but we're also doing some research on the alleged perpetrators of domestic violence, which I think also has importance in terms of what interventions might be effective in reducing the risk that this person might engage in future acts of domestic violence. So again, on that macro level, I think the research can be really useful in educating, informing policy, informing practice, informing the law. And then certainly on a micro level, when I do cases that involve domestic violence, being able to contextualize it for the court, saying, very obvious things like the survivor is not responsible for what happened. And sometimes it just takes someone who has a degree or has some you know, perception of authority in a courtroom to try to educate people. And I found that that can occasionally be effective. Okay, yeah, I think it's really interesting that you bring up um, this kind of idea that men can't be victims of domestic violence, because as you know, that's like a particular interest of mine in this field. Yes. And especially how it um, impacts immigrant communities, because domestic violence as a whole, the research in the country um, hasn't really, it's just like finally starting to funnel down into immigrant communities. Um, and there's a large body of research on it, but it really focuses mainly on female survivors mm -hmm. um, in immigrant communities. And I'm just wondering if you have any idea or what you think, um, how you think that impacts male immigrants of 
domestic violence survivors across the board and what's um, maybe some barriers that male survivors that are immigrants are facing? Yeah, it's a great question. And it, if, if you don't mind, it might be helpful if I just spend a minute or so talking about the barriers that, that survivors of domestic violence experience in general. And we, we know that, that for certain types of violent crimes, the, the people who have been victimized by those offenses are often reluctant to come forward. We see that with domestic violence. We see that with um, people who survive sexual assault. And there's various reasons for this. And research is another way that social science has contributed because research has helped identify some of those barriers of people seeking help. And some of those barriers are, are person-related factors. People are scared. So they don't want to come forward because they're afraid of retaliation or some sort of revenge. It's not uncommon for a survivor of domestic violence to feel shame, to feel embarrassment, to feel like it was, to feel like it was their fault. And there's an interesting phenomenon when it comes to people who are victims of domestic violence and victims of sexual assault. We see it in particular with those two categories of offenses where the, the survivor will assume responsibility for it and say it's their fault. So I've worked with survivors of sexual assault who would say things like, well, I was dressed provocatively, or maybe I was being flirtatious, as if somehow that justified, which of course it doesn't, the assault that took place. And the psychological reasoning for that is actually fairly simple. It's the idea that well, if it was my fault, then I can prevent that in the future. So I will not be re-victimized. And we see that with survivors of domestic violence who say, well, I provoked my partner. And so it was my fault and I won't do it. So we get these, these person-related factors that can prevent someone from seeking help. We also get relationship factors. So the perpetrator might threaten the person or there might be an implicit threat that if they tell someone, there'll be a retaliation or their friends convince them. No, don't, no, it's not that big of a deal. Or their family convinces them. We don't need this attention. So let's just not talk about it. That's a relationship issue. Keep it, you know, don't air your dirty laundry. Um, and so we see those sorts of interpersonal factors as well. And then of course, with any sort of uh, domestic violence offense or a sexual assault, we see these systemic issues that are a hindrance to people seeking help. The idea that I'm gonna be re-victimized in court. The law enforcement's not gonna take this seriously. They're not really gonna investigate this. Even if they do, where am I gonna go? Um, I'm reliant, I'm dependent on this person, either emotionally or financially or both, or what resources are, are available for someone who's been through this. So it just becomes this overwhelming myriad of personal, interpersonal, and systemic factors that prevent people from bringing this to the attention of law enforcement or sometimes mental health providers uh, or anyone else who can help. And then I'll just briefly add when it comes to, um, and those, those same factors and some others are for male survivors. And then when you add the immigrant status on top of it, male Domestic violence survivors can feel invisible. They can feel like there's nowhere to go to get help. Um, 
these problems are more complex and nuanced when you're dealing with an immigrant population. Maybe depending on their their status, they might feel that they can't come forward for fear of deportation or bringing their status to the attention of authorities. Or maybe in whatever um, country they came from, there's a particular culture or stigma associated with being a victim of domestic violence. That's that's the thinking goes, that's women. Women are victims of domestic violence, not men. And so there's it adds to the reluctance to come forward to get the help that they need. So I think it's fascinating how you mentioned the victim's point of view when it comes to the rationalizations, right? So when you said that the victim will blame what they said or how they dressed as a way to somehow understand that if they don't say that thing or dress provocatively, that they can avoid um, the same instance from happening again. Um, I know that I've never logically reasoned that type of reaction that way, and I find it very interesting. And I definitely think that if there's more awareness in how victims think and why they react the way they do, in turn, um, there will be more positive conversations around it. And hopefully that can help us move forward um, and in the right direction. So I guess my next question for you is that when you're dealing with either female or male victims, is there an active difference in how you approach each situation or how receptive the victim is to your help? Um, and to add to that, do you think that being of immigrant status adds another layer of distance a victim might have in being forthcoming? Yeah, that's, there's a lot there, and I'll try to keep this brief, but the just the, the many factors that are present that prevent someone or reduce the likelihood that someone's going to get help, all of those factors are present for male survivors of domestic violence, plus some. And it's not that they're more of a, of a victim of domestic violence. I'm not implying that. I'm saying there are just, there's different considerations when it comes to it. And I know that when I've worked with survivors, and then when you add, I'll add, when you add people, uh, um, people of color, or people with uh, another status that is historically marginalized, there might just be a general distrust of, of the authorities anyway, um, including mental health treatment, which is often seen as part of the system. So I've certainly encountered um, women victims, if I'm just using the binary sex classifications for this, um, who have been reluctant to seek attention. They don't want to lose custody of their kids. They feel like they need to protect their kids. There's financial reasons. I mean, there's just dozens and dozens of reasons. Um, I will say, though, that when I've worked with male victims, there is even more reluctance to acknowledge that it was domestic violence because, it, again, it seems like, you know, quote, that's a, that's a woman crime, right? The women are victimized and men are not. And so you have to get past that. You have to get the person to realize that, no, no, you experienced domestic violence. And part of it is normalizing it for that person, explaining to them that lots of males have been in this position that you're in. You're not alone in experiencing domestic violence. And if you can normalize it a little bit, that's probably not the right word, but if you can help the person understand that they're not alone, then they will be somewhat more likely, at least in my experience, to try to get the help that they need. I haven't had the opportunity to work with too many immigrants who are experiencing domestic violence. Um, so I'll just leave my comments where they are in terms of the other groups. Great, well, thank you for that insight. I think it's really important. And I guess we're talking about social science and I think 
maybe it's something at face value. A lot of people don't realize um, that influences so much of the policy um, work that people are doing. Uh, and I think that it's been like vitally important in domestic violence advocacy. But as somebody who kind of sees both sides of that, um, this will be our last question. Where do you see, um, like what are the next steps you see for domestic violence advocacy? Like what do you think are the issues that we can tackle? Well, I see three areas that I, I believe are are ripe for continued attention that can help with increasing our knowledge and understanding and also help with advocacy efforts. So the first is we need to continue to focus on domestic violence survivors. We need to continue to have education. We need to have available resources. I mean, part of what I found is that people who've experience domestic violence, sometimes just don't have any idea of what resources are even available for them. So, you know, whether it's putting pamphlets in a, in a doctor's office or in a dentist's office or just anywhere in public at the bus station, just educating people about resources that are available, um, increasing the protection that we provide to survivors of domestic violence, making sure that the law enforcement response to domestic violence is appropriate and timely. Um, part of the research that I've done has been on sexual assault on college campuses, where we see a lot of variability in how that is investigated and whether it's reported or whether law enforcement is involved. And so I'm very sensitive to these ideas of proper and timely law enforcement, having proper court procedures, to protect not only the due process rights of the alleged perpetrator, but to protect the, 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 the person who survived the domestic violence. They need to be protected as well. So one area is to focus on, on, on the survivors. I also think though, we need to continue to focus on domestic violence perpetrators. We have some interventions that have shown to be effective to varying degrees in reducing the likelihood that someone will engage in domestic violence. So, um, you know, certain medications can be effective. Certain therapeutic interventions can be effective. There's some other tools that we know that can reduce the likelihood of domestic violence. Um, Problem-solving courts are a particularly interesting intervention. They've been developed primarily for, uh, there's drug courts and mental health courts and veterans courts, but there are in some jurisdictions problem-solving courts for domestic violence. And so these courts, unlike a traditional court, are really looking at why is this particular person engaging in domestic violence? What services can we provide to try to reduce the likelihood they're going to engage in domestic violence in the future? And so I think problem-solving courts are um, a, an area that's really exciting to me that I think could potentially be helpful. And then the last one I'll add, and this is really a broader consideration, but we just need to keep educating the public. And I'm not exactly sure how we do that. I mean, that's sort of a, everyone says that it's education. That's what we need to do. But we need to educate people about what constitutes domestic violence. We need to educate people about um, how to come forward. We need to remove the stigma that's associated with being a survivor of domestic violence and the fear and the shame that comes with that. And particularly among, again, people of color, and transgender and non-binary, um, when there's same-sex sexual assault that, that raises, and domestic violence, of course, that raises a host of other 
uh, considerations as well. So I think through education, research, clinical work, and advocacy, we can take some important steps forward. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. DiMatteo. We really appreciate you making time for us. Um, and it's a very interesting topic that I could talk about <laughs> for hours, um, but I think you gave us a great number of things to think about. So thank you so much. Yep, thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of In the Shadows, where we shed light on a system failing in the shadows. I think Dr. DiMatteo raised a lot of interesting questions for those involved in domestic violence advocacy to think about. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. If you live in Pennsylvania, you can reach out to the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Domestic Violence at pcadv.org. As always, those resources will be listed in our show notes. Next week, we'll be discussing domestic violence as a basis for asylum claims.